I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And we wanted to, to jump Table Mountain. So you take the gondola up, about a two-minute walk. You jump over a viewing platform, sort of viewing point, onto the edge of the cliff. So we gear up. Um, and I got down on one knee and proposed to, to Eva. She said yes, and, uh, and we both jumped off together. And we didn't make it to the to the landing area that we wanted to make, which was a nice, huge rugby field. And then when Eva pulled her parachute, she had line twists. So Eva landed first, and I literally saw her bounce off the ground. <clears throat> Welcome back. Tim Howell is one of the most experienced base jumpers in the world. He specialises in climbing mountains and then being the first to fly off them in his wingsuit. You're about to hear how he does it, and how he minimises the risk in one of the riskiest professions on the planet. And he's going to tell us about a few of his close calls. But before we get into the episode, Athletic Greens are offering our listeners an exclusive deal when you visit athleticgreens.com forward slash Andy. When you make your first purchase, you get a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs. I've been taking AG1 by Athletic Greens for about a year now, and I've never felt better. I take it as soon as I wake up every morning. One scoop contains 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food-sourced ingredients, probiotics and adaptogens just visit athleticgreens.com forward slash andy to take ownership of your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance i hope you enjoy the episode tim thanks for coming on the show mate thanks very much for having me man no problem where are you been you've been away haven't you yeah just got back home a couple of hours ago actually so been away in the in the algerian sahara desert for the last week or so so literally came back had a quick wash and uh, yeah, on your show. Thanks very much. Nice. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for making the effort. What what were you doing in the desert? They've just opened up the area or pretty much the country for, for Brits on a tourist visa uh, or visa on, on arrival. So made it a little bit easier for us to travel. And I just thought seeing as not many people have really experienced that, that country, especially not really for, for climbing or base jumping. Um, it would be a really good opportunity to take a bunch of guys and uh, explore the desert. So yeah, it was it was really successful. We found a lot more than we were expecting, to be honest. What were you actually looking for there? Just mountains to jump off, or pretty much, <laughs> yeah, big vertical cliffs, uh, preferably with easy enough access. You know, a little bit of climbing, a little bit of scrambling. Um, that we could navigate, you know, quickly in the mornings to get the best best uh, wind conditions. Um, so every day we'd be getting two jumps from cliffs that were, you know, as high as 200 meters straight out of these sand dunes. Just absolute beautiful, stunning location. So you've already you've done all the jumps already. Yeah. So we we went there, and because it's not a real touristy hotspot, you know, there's not much. Uh, research that we can do in terms of looking at topography of maps or pictures or Instagram posts or whatever it is. So it was really a bit of a shot in the dark just to go there and, and see what we could find. Yeah, because you mentioned how 
Instagram before because that's how you find a lot of your places. But it is a yeah. lot of places are also really remote like this. You you can't do your research without actually being on the ground. Yeah, so so I think Vietnam was a good example of that. So I was trying to find the first wingsuit jump in Vietnam. Um, and you can scour sort of Google Earth and things like Fat Maps to try and find elevation differences, uh, try and find sheer cliffs. But obviously, it's not super high quality. So, you know, a picture paints a thousand words. And, and from a single picture, that's what really started the hunt for me. But then even from a single picture, you can tell it's a sheer cliff, maybe, but you can't really tell how high it is. So there's only so much you can do before booking the plane tickets and, and heading out there and, and really finding out for yourself. How high do they have to be? The smallest jump I've ever done is 26 meters, but I'm not traveling halfway around the world and hiking for four days to, to jump off a cliff that's 26 meters. So <laughs> How did it all start? Like... It was your old man because he kind of gave you free reign on risk-taking growing up kind of thing, didn't he? I think that's probably a good way of, of putting it. I don't have kids myself, but I, I think it must be quite hard to look at your kid doing something risky but have confidence in them and give them that confidence as well. You know, at an early age, it was, you know, doing mountain bike jumps. And, and then I remember my dad let me climb up some scaffolding that was on the house and walk from one chimney to the other, you know, across the rooftop. The type of stuff you don't tell tell my mum, but my dad was all up for it. I think that gives you a lot of confidence in your own ability because, of course, you know, if you're on a, a footpath, you could walk across it, no problem. So why is it any different that it's, you know, 30 metres up in the air? So you develop this kind of risk-taking thing and then part of your story also involves going into the marines right yeah i mean so I, I lived in south africa for two years uh when i finished college how was that it, it was wild it was it was crazy you know all sorts happened like a guy got eaten by a hyena hang on a on our on our camp so we have our own little staff quarters that are out the back we have a tv room um that had this tiny color tv that was flickering nigerian soap operas on it that were absolutely awful the um the door the carpenter had put the handle in incorrectly so the latch on the door you could push it open but you had to use the handle to close it so i remember i was in there one night eating my food watching the awful tv and this dog came in the room because it just pushed on the on the door and it walked in and I stood up thinking, you know, you're not allowed dogs, you're not allowed pets in this reserve. It's, it's a whole natural ecosystem. You can't introduce any other animals. And I was thinking, we don't have dogs. And I stood up and realized it was a hyena. So spotted hyenas, they they don't really hunt, you know, they, they scavenge. So as soon as I stood up, you know, made a big scene, waved it off, it, it ran off, like without a problem, no dramas. Um, but the problem with this guy is he'd been eating meat with his hand. He'd probably been drinking a little bit too much, fell asleep on the sofa. So now he smells of, of dead meat, cooked meat. He's asleep, not moving. And uh, yeah, the hyena came in, took a chunk out of his arm. Then we heard the screaming and then it got his chest. And and with the, with the bite force that the hyenas do, you know, they, they absolutely crush bones. And 
bone is actually quite a bit of what they eat you know their scat is is white and powdery because the amount of bone they eat and this guy was yeah it was it was toast and uh Jesus. yeah flickering little candle when you went in the room and there was blood everywhere so it was yeah it was pretty rowdy and you're 19 years old it was, it was a full-on time you know like there was another guy who was a schizophrenic um part of the team he woke up one day and decided to shoot his wife and then came after me. I was on my, my Easter leave at that point, so it was a good job I was out of town. <laughs> it was yeah, it was wild times. What, what what so he shot his wife and then came after you. What was your involvement in this? What were you what were you up to? My involvement was he didn't like the uh, the young white guy that had the same job as him. And then yeah, how and did then, you know he was coming after you? Yeah, what happened? Talk me through that. I think I think it was my boss or somebody called me and said, Where are you? Because he shot his wife. Then he was kind of on the run looking, I think, for me. So he came back to the reserve and that's when my boss asked me, like, where are you? And then he ended up shooting himself in the back of his car on the reserve. So it was, um, yeah, it was a bit of a mess. Hectic. I can see why you kind of uh, left and decided to come back to... Yeah, I mean, it all came together. The recession hit and Jacob Zuma became president. So it made my visa application process to extend it a little bit harder. And then the whole um, suicide murder spree thing happened. And I was like, yeah, it's time time to head back. And that's what led to the Marines. And what were you doing in the Marines? So I ended up in the in the mountain leader branch. So I, I joined, I did a short tour of Afghan. Was that when you started the base jumping? I mean, when, when did the parachuting, when did all this start? Mm, it was kind of uh, hand in hand with the Marines. Like it's, it's not like the Marines taught me skydiving or climbing or base jumping. I was doing it outside at the same time and got opportunities to do it within the Marines as well. I, I remember even during training, which is, you know, 32 weeks of really arduous training. It's the, it's the longest basic training in the world for any military and at the weekends where well, people would be resting and recovering, I'll be out skydiving or climbing. I took my base rig and my climbing gear pretty much on every tour or deployment I went on and, and tried to yeah, tried to jump and climb my way around the world every time I went on a nice trip that, they, uh, that the Marines provided me with. How, how did they complement each other, the Marines and then base jumping, like mentally or through habit? Yeah. Are, there, are there similarities like tangible for things sure. that cross over? Yeah. I, I think for me, especially for mountaineering, in the Marines, there, there were some tough times during training and, um, and deployments and stuff, and you really push yourself mentally and physically. And it was kind of, um, it swung backwards and forwards. You know, I'd, I'd do some sort of training in the Marines, and that was the hardest thing I ever did. And then I'd climb the north face of the Eiger and that was the hardest thing. And then I did another bit of training and I did this mountain. And and it, so I, it was kind of playing off my civilian hobby lifestyle with, with my marine career. But I think the main thing that I took away with it is the mental robustness, knowing that if I, I got stuck in the mountains and times got tough, that I could rough it through and, and get through the other end just through you know a bit of resilience. And there were a few times that I look back at now there was a climb that we did on the north face of the Drew and we got stuck in a storm and we had to abseil 800 meters in this rainstorm and thunderstorm. Our gear was buzzing because of the electricity in the air, uh, you know, the hairs on the back of your... Oh, what the electricity was running through yeah. your gear. Yeah, I mean, it, it was it was literally like humming. You, you could feel the electricity and 
obviously we've got all this wet rope and metal work all the cams and carabiners and stuff and you could feel and it's just coming from the wither humming yeah yeah so it took us something like 12 hours in a rainstorm to abseil off this cliff and it was 12 hours of just misery <laughs> until we got back to back to the mountain hut let's talk about base jumping because i actually i didn't realize it until i started researching that it's a base is an acronym i thought it just yeah. meant jumping yeah, off yeah. a base of something it's an acronym for building antenna span and earth um span being something that spans a distance like a bridge and earth being something natural normally a cliff I mean, it all, it all freaks me out, but antennas is the one that really, like, you have, oh, really? So oh, really? Out of those? Yeah. So, like, you climb up an antenna, like a like a radio mast. There's a big one in the UK. There's thousand footers all over the place, but we did a, a thousand footer in the UK, um, and it's just around the height where a wingsuit would kind of work. It's, Whereabouts was it? You know, you, you uh, probably shouldn't say. Oh, can you not say? In, in the Midlands. In the Midlands somewhere. Okay. Well, we want to we want to make sure that people can do it again and again, you know? Oh, so it's, so you don't want to say so people, so they don't put up blockers for other people to be able to go and do it? Yeah, for me, I mean, there's quite a bit of ethics to base jumping. And the more we can continue doing it and help other people do it, that's only a good thing. Whereas you th- see a lot of like urban explorers will climb these sort of things and put a flag up and sell their story to the Daily Mail and then it all gets shut down and nobody else can can do that activity. Like it's just, uh, uh. yeah, it's a bit selfish, I think, maybe. Whereas if you if you knew that every day that there's good wind in London, there will be somebody base jumping, but they won't post it. Really? Right? Is that right? For sure, for sure. There's a huge amount of base jumpers in London and if the winds are good, they're going to be out. No way. I've never yeah. seen one. Yeah, there we go. Yeah. Where would I but not not in the city. Yeah. No. What about yeah, every every big building that you've looked at has probably been jumped. Ridiculous. So someone's jumped off the shard. Someone's jumped my friends jumped off the shard. Two two guys I know of have jumped off the shard. And did they not get arrested? No, because they don't sell it to the Daily Mail. <laughs> That's awesome. And what about what about police? The police in the UK, it's not a criminal offence, it's a civil offence. So the owners of the building have to take you to court, which happens with urban explorers quite a bit. And uh, I've had a friend of mine go to jail because he climbed a building that had an injunction on that specific building. But the times that I've, I've bumped into police, they were called because they thought I was a burglar. And as soon as... I tell them, I'm sorry, I was base jumping. They don't care about the uh, the call anymore. They're now like, oh, wh- where did you land? How high was it? How high does it need to be? What's your lowest? What's your highest? And now, <laughs> yeah, they're not interested. A so, British police, they, they must be yeah. some of the best police going around when it comes to base jumping. Well, compared to America where, you know, in a national park in America, in Yosemite, you land. Uh, a friend of mine landed in a tree, had to get the fire brigade to come out, took him down off the tree as soon as his feet were on the ground the police had handcuffs on him and this is in yosemite where people are climbing three thousand foot big walls you know and that's fine it's fine to solo those big walls but you can't jump off them do you do the urban Um, stuff in london did you do it in the evening it's always at night it's nearly always at night especially like the more high profile things oh tell me about the antenna sorry i took you off off track (laughs) sorry the antenna 
Yeah, so there's a few motion detectors and you figure out where they are and bypass them and start this horrible 300 meter long ladder climb. It's, the ladder's internal and uh takes a while, especially when you've got a big, you know, rig on your back. So yeah, you've got to true. stay real close to the to the to the ladder so you can get through the hatches. So we start climbing, we know it's gonna take us about an hour or so to to do the climb. So an hour before sunrise, start climbing the pitch black. And then when you start gearing up, the sun's popping up. I had my wingsuit on for that one. And then the thousand footers have guidelines. So the top has a cable, three cables going down at 120 degrees between each one. So you jump in between them and yeah, fly out and uh, open the parachute and land in the big field and then run Too off. easy. And then run off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, quick pick. Quick uh, stash in your gear and then, yeah, run back to the car. From the outside, it looks like you guys just rock up at an antenna, rock up at a bridge, whatever it is. But yeah. there's all sorts of calculations and stuff that go into this. It's not You're not just finding something that's a certain height and then just jumping off it and wingsuiting or jumping off it and opening your mm. parachute, are you? Can you talk me through that? Yeah. So, I mean, the most, I suppose, complicated thing to do would be to find a cliff that's never been jumped before and jump it in the wingsuit. Because in a wingsuit, you're, you're traveling quite a far distance. And the cliff doesn't have to be vertical in a wingsuit. It can have ledges because as you jump in the wingsuit, you're gaining distance away from the cliff. So it doesn't need to be vertical. So there's a lot of trigonometry that goes into it. Then you need to calculate your glide ratio, how high you want to pull your parachute, and the, the fall in your wingsuit before you reach a glide ratio because your wingsuit falls it pressurizes and then it starts flying so there's all those calculations to make to just figure out how far you can fly to a certain landing area because you might be flying above fields where you can land anywhere but also you might be flying on a glacier where there's only certain parts of that glacier you can land on or in vietnam there were certain rice fields amongst jungle and rivers there's a lot of calculations that go into it when you've done that much research and you've traveled that far, do you ever say, nah, not, not for me today. I'm not jumping there. Yeah. So the, the, probably the most effort that I've gone to uh, to get a jump and not being able to jump was the Matterhorn. So it took me eight just, hours. Just explain what, the, yeah, explain what the Matterhorn is. So the Matterhorn is uh, the mountain on the Toblerone. <laughs> it's a 4,000 meter mountain in the, in the Swiss Alps. It's actually on the border between Italy and Switzerland. And people normally take two days to climb it. So you stay at a hut and then go up the next day to, to the summit and then back down. And, uh, the hut's really expensive and normally overbooked. So we didn't really have that option because you can't really decide these things in advance. So you look at the weather and you think tomorrow, the wind at altitude, 4,000 meters altitude is really good. So tomorrow I have an opportunity. So you can't really book in advance to, to get these mountain huts. So because of that, we had to go from the valley floor. So we climbed from the valley floor up to the summit in one push. And then when we got to the summit, uh, the wind was just howling. And, and we straight away said, not for us, you know. And, and we've, we've taken all the gear that we need to climb as well as obviously our wingsuit and, and parachute. So it's a lot more hard going because of all this extra weight. And we, uh, yeah, we started started the, the hike back down and then two of our friends had popped up from the Swiss side and were about to jump as well. And they 
they they jumped. But I think it's really important for me to be able to say, you know, it's my choice, it's my decision. I'm not going to get coerced by not that they were coercing me or pushing me to jump, but just because they are jumping doesn't mean I should jump. Uh, and the decision should be coming from the individual, not some sort of herd mentality of, oh, they did it, I should do it. So, so yeah, we decided to hike back down. So it was a it was a long day. Do you get lots of people just rocking up with zero experience and just giving it a crack and having accidents? It just does one, happen. Does it? You can always jump once and then you might not get another chance to jump again. <laughs> that's heavy. Um, <laughs> and that's, yeah, that happened, I think, twice in one year, a couple of years ago. It was a guy who bought the biggest wingsuit you can. And the, the bigger the wingsuit, the more experience you need to be able to fly it. And he decided to give it a go without any knowledge whatsoever or training or, or anything. And yeah, spiraled out of control and that was it. So there's a lot more to it. You know, a lot, a lot of people, yeah. even without the wingsuit, just say, oh, you just jump off and, and throw throw this drogue they probably call it it's not called spread drogue. your arms you throw it and it's spread your arms and jo jobs are good and but it's it's crazy how much body awareness and symmetry and um an experience you need for for this sort of thing okay so talk me through what's going on what you're doing so hmm. you were you're, you've let's just say you've jumped off your airborne Okay, you spread your arms. Now what? What's what? What are you? Are you just trying to balance and or like? <laughs> yeah. So I mean, it's 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 really intuitive once you've got the experience. You come to me. You go. I want a wingsuit base jump. Yeah. So the process you need to do is do, and this is minimum. This is like sort of recommended. This isn't like what a lot of people do. A lot of people do way more. So two hundred skydives. So two hundred skydives took me two years. You could do it in a year, but 200 skydives kind of minimum. Then you can start base jumping. Then at the same time, you might continue your skydiving and do 200 more wingsuit skydives. Then at the same time, maybe you're getting a couple of hundred base jumping without the wingsuit. Right. Then once you've got a couple of hundred wingsuit skydives, you can maybe do a wingsuit base jump in the smallest suit possible. You know, because the smallest suit is, is suit is very forgiving. Then maybe have a, after a couple of seasons, or each season, you might have done fifty wingsuit base jumps, and you do another hundred wingsuit skydives in a bigger suit, and a bigger suit, and a bigger suit, and then you take that experience to base jumping. So by now, maybe you've got five, six hundred skydives and a couple of hundred base jumps some of them are wingsuit base jumps and now you can put on put on the biggest base jumping wingsuit to do more technical wingsuiting but in the base jumping environment let's say i was that guy that didn't hadn't had any experience let's say i was about to jump do a, a wingsuit it could be out of a plane or whatever i'm wingsuiting mm. what am i doing with my arms like what am i thinking about is it just all intuitive or is there some was there advice <clears> that you'd give me on saying okay and are you going to this is what you're going to feel. This is where you, this is where your, all the pressure is going to come from. Make sure you keep your arms yeah. at this point. So the important parts for a wingsuit base jump are really the exit and the pull. 
the flight is so the exit is, is when intuitive. you're running off and jumping or or when you're jumping so yeah off, no, no running jumping but yeah yeah exactly yeah no running um, in the wingsuit of course yeah <laughs> that's and that's something you can't practice in a plane because the plane's always got a forward movement you jump out the plane and because of the airspeed your, your wingsuit inflates straight away uh, whereas with a base jump you're you're jumping into dead air that air is not moving so it's a very different process so you can't sim well the only way you can really simulate that is safely is from a hot air balloon um because you got that that dead air but you've got a huge amount of height and, and no cliff that you could hit <laughs> okay so so you've jumped you, you're jumping off like what are you doing yeah so the jump is is quite specific itself you know i i jump with the right foot forward left foot trailing and that to me because i jump a lot in the alps high altitude snow and ice it means that if my right foot slips i've got traction with my left whereas if i've got both feet on the exit at the same point they could both slip and now i'm in trouble so i put my right foot forward I'm looking at about 45 degrees down. I'm crouching. My arms are in. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I jump off and I start to feel the suit inflate. So it starts to pressurize. We've got inlets and the, the air goes in the inlets and literally inflates the suit like a, a Michelin man, like a, you know, a blow up mattress. And at that point, I'm rolling my shoulders, creating a, a leaning, uh, a leading edge, keeping pressure on my toes, putting my legs apart, keeping pressure on the wingsuit, you know, really spreading out, keeping it tight. And then the flight, as I say, is, is, is really intuitive. It's, um, you know, I want to go over there. I'm going to start leaning there using using my legs and my arms to, to direct me. And that comes from those hundreds of skydives prior where you really start to to feel how the suit flies is that um, is that bit a little bit like surfing you kind of leaning or looking and you kind of feel that very much so yeah i mean there's a, there's a lot to use you know it, where your chin is where your chest is where your arms are whether they're uh, by your side or back uh your angle of attack there's a lot to it yeah then it comes down to your pull so the, the pull is you, you a lot of people might think you land in the wingsuit but you you flare the wingsuit you kill off some speed then you pull your pi uh, your pilot chute which is connected to your parachute so by, by flaring the wingsuit you mean like you're you yeah. flare it towards you're, the wing, you're increasing so you your glide slider. ratio like a yeah, like exactly. a plane landing yeah, yeah. almost yeah exactly yeah. exactly and that just means that your your, your parachute is going to open nice and softly and 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 you know not not slam you and then yeah you you unzip your arms and your legs get the toggles so you, un you, unzip, you unzip the kind of the webbed bit in between your arms yeah. and your legs. Yeah, that's it. And then go. Yeah, yeah. 
there's a there's a clip on YouTube that I found that I found when I was uh, doing some research for this. It's titled "The First Wingsuit Flight from Highest Mountain in the Southern Hemisphere." When I'm watching that, yeah, and I'm seeing your seeing your little penguin feet inching along the top of this rock, I feel yeah, that was I, pretty. I felt sick. I felt I actually felt nauseous watching it. <laughs> Can you talk me through what's going on in your head, what you're looking at, what you're seeing, and how you're feeling? And just let me inside your head when, you, sure. when you're on top of that rock. So, so that was uh, Aconcagua, which is just below seven thousand meters in altitude. It's the highest mountain outside of the Himalaya and the highest in South America. And you've climbed Argentina. up there. So yeah, we've we've got to Camp Two, which is a thousand meters below the summit. And Camp Two was very close to this big cliff band. So I thought this might be a great opportunity for me to to be the first person to wingsuit from this mountain. Before I jumped, my wife said, only jump if you're a hundred percent sure. Of all the calculations, of the conditions, of my ability, my skill set, my experience, everything. So when I was walking out on that little rock boardwalk, <laughs> like I had done all the calculations. I had checked out the landing. I had actually done that walk the day before. So I was sure. You'd done you so you'd like, already been up there. Yeah. So so our camp was so close to that area, I could do all the recce, the reconnaissance. And in the military, there's a saying that recce is never wasted. So if I get a chance to, to do all those calculations, to stand on that exit point with a rope safely, to visualize the landing, to, to know even exactly where I'm going to put my feet on that exit point, it means the next day, that's all sure. That's all, you know, in my head, locked in. I, I can rock up, put my suit on, do the job. Instead of on the day being like, oh, where am I going to put my feet? Where am I going to fly to? What's the landing pattern? What's, you know, so, so in that video, I know exactly what's happening. I know exactly my plan and all I need to do is carry it out. I could only so, see your feet, but you look like you're shitting yourself. I'm just saying. To be honest, and I, 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 I see this a lot when I, when I teach base jumpers and stuff. If you rock up at a new exit point, the first couple of minutes you're shitting yourself. You're you're worried. You're scared. Then you start to gear up. You know, you take some time packing your your pilot shoot, gearing up. Start to sort of acclimatize, get used to the surroundings. And then when you're on the exit point, my heart's settled, and I'm I'm just there to carry out what uh, what I know I can do. So you're up there on that jump day in that video. Your feet are shuffling to <laughs> shuffling towards the edge. Yeah. <laughs> I, are you okay? So you you're okay in that space. You're just you're thinking quite clearly. hundred exactly percent. If 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 ever if I was worried, unsure, if my heartbeat was racing a thousand miles an hour, I, I I wouldn't be there. I if I was scared or nervous, you know, there's a little bit of nervousness is healthy. You know, it it keeps you sharp. But if if you're you know, if your heart's beating a million miles an hour, I should not be there. I should take a step back and, and evaluate what the fuck I'm doing. Mm. So so I, I get to the exit and I normally take a few deep, big deep breaths, you know, really just calm down. Is that box breathing? Like the uh, two in the nose? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Does that work for you? Because yeah. I hear that a lot. It comes up a lot. Yeah, it does. Um, whether it works or not, whether it's placebo, or whatever it is, it's just something for me to focus on. And I, I think it, it must get my heart rate down. 
I've been on jumps before where the person before me jumped didn't have a good flight or you know tripped or something and it had a, had a, a near call a near miss you know and then my heart's beating a million miles an hour and I start to breathing and now I'm ready I, I don't don't jump when I'm when I'm not sure you know yeah because I was gonna ask you about that how you manage adrenaline because once adrenaline's mm. in you it's in yeah, you. yeah. You're, 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 you've got adrenaline in you. You don't just yeah. manage it out. Like, what, what, how do you, how do you manage that situation? So, a, adrenaline, I would say, during that flight. I mean, that that was a very special flight for me because that was um, very high altitude, never been done before. It was my personal record for altitude. It taken us eight days of climbing to get to that point. So that was probably the most full-on jump for me that I've ever done. But in other cases. There, there is no adrenaline. It is, it is just focus, and you're carrying out what you're there to do. So adrenaline hits when something goes wrong. Normally, is is when your your heart starts pounding, and then when you land, you know, when you land, all the emotions hit, and you're like, I've done it successfully. And that's when you uh, probably the heart rate goes up again. When I was researching for this interview, I was watching a program on Netflix. I think it's called Wingman or Wingmen proximity jumping so like guys jumping out together and you see them honing through like valleys and um oh they did one in is it chamonix the the french alps where they went they went through under their the bridge the, through yeah. that gap they went yeah. they were in brazil and they went under the the christ redeemer's arm um that they, they were doing all this like gnarly stuff and there was a couple of close calls actually i think the chamonix one there was a close was, call near a gondola yeah they almost plowed that, straight into one do you do anything that's remotely similar to that so i don't have a lot of wingsuit skydives and proximity flying isn't sustainable even for the best wingsuit skydives in the world it's been proven that it's not sustainable so for that to be your niche that you do day in day out is only going to end one way that's that's the way that i see it so for me, I'll, I'll do a little bit of proximity, a little bit of terrain flying for a, a flight that I know very well, um, and I don't need to push it, you know. And then my niche is is finding these these hard to get to remote jumps around the world, and that's where my skill set from mountaineering and climbing comes in, and that and that's why maybe other people haven't jumped them or climbed them because you need that combination of being a capable wingsuit and a capable climber. But yeah, you know, it's it's very fun to fly very very close to things. But um, you're you're making your margin for error smaller and smaller. You had a close call once, I think, was a beachy head. That was a big learning, yeah, big lesson for me. Talk me through um, what happened. So that was probably my second or third year of base jumping. So still a newbie, still not knowing. Um, and there were there's a big group of us. There was cameras and I decided to, to do a barrel roll um, and I was not capable of doing that. So my parachute came out the wrong way, uh, hit the cliff, kicked off, hit the cliff oh again. Goodness. The parachute got hung up for a, for a split second. That's probably the worst situation you can have because the canopy's collapsed and you're hanging from a thread on a cliff. And if something breaks or cuts or whatever, you're just plummeting. And then... The, the rock it was hanging off for this split second cut the canopy so i was released again turned it around landed um hit the ground pretty hard and uh walked away 
and there, there was a hole in the canopy that I could have walked through like it ripped a big hole in the canopy and that for me was a big lesson to learn from you know from multiple different things ego peer pressure not that there was peer pressure but there was a group and I put that pressure on myself and I, I learned from it and something like that never happened again which which probably plays into that story of, of the Matterhorn you know just because somebody else is doing it and just because there are other people there doesn't mean you have to yeah that's a tough one isn't it especially if there's cameras there or if there's people watching there's that expectation that you've committed there, there is and I, and I see that quite a bit and there's there's even been fatalities that i would say are directly related to cameras being there really um, and you know that's that's part of my i'd say my job you know what what I've, the career that i've made for myself now is is doing this sort of thing for cameras or for sponsors but I, I think I've grown to a point where I don't put that pressure on myself and I'm not going to let anyone put that pressure on me. And I'll only do things that I know uh, I'm sure about. Your your wife base jumps as well, doesn't she? Yeah. Yeah, she um, she was a skydive instructor at the weekends in uh, Skydive Madrid. And she had about one and a half thousand skydives at that point. And I was probably a couple of hundred in um, and I was learning to wingsuit so I could wingsuit base jump and I exited the plane I inflated my wingsuit too early and nearly hit the tail of the plane so the pilot told Eva my wife to go and tell this Englishman off and tell him that he's being an idiot so that's how it all started tell me the story about Cape Town that I mean set yeah, the scene so Cape's pretty full-on um last two days of the trip and we wanted to to jump table mountain so you take the gondola up about a two minute walk you jump over a viewing platform sort of viewing point onto the edge of the cliff so we gear up and i had a friend who's a photographer who's on the viewing platform um and i got down on one knee and proposed to to eva she said yes thank goodness congratulations and, uh, and we both jumped off together so she, Eva always follows me. We count down three, two, one. I jump, she follows. And because we were trying to fly together, we were limiting the performance and speed. There was a little bit of head right? Yeah, in, in the wingsuit, yeah. And we didn't make it to the to the landing area that we wanted to make, which was a nice, huge rugby field. So um, what happened? Like, what was Because the... we were flying together, we're, we're kind of slowing down to the lowest fly, the slower flyer and... And there's a little bit of headwind coming off the sea. So we just didn't have the best performance in the flight. And then when Eva pulled her parachute, she had line twists, which normally isn't a big issue. And and it wasn't really then, but it, it definitely meant we couldn't reach our landing area. So Eva landed first and she landed downwind. So you always want to land into wind because it slows down your parachute. And I literally saw a bounce off the ground, which um, which I thought would probably hurt a little bit. But she acted as a wind sock for me. I knew that if she's bouncing off the ground landing that way, I'm going to land the opposite direction. I'll have a really nice landing. So Good thank on you her. very much for that. Took one for the team there. And, and uh, so I landed next to her and uh, and she was crying. When you saw her bounce off the dick? I or... thought that's not ideal. I, I saw it from above and I thought that's going to hurt. You know, that's Well, I wasn't hurt. thinking Did the you... worst. You were... But, you know, sprained ankle, you know. I, I was, yeah, you know, we, we do, you have a downwind landing every now and again and it, and it, you know, it's not, it's not the end of the world, but this one did look bad, but you know, I wasn't thinking anything, anything too serious. 
and she was crying a little bit and I thought again maybe a sprained ankle but when I came up I saw the blood coming out of the zip on the wingsuit so I opened up the the zip and uh, her sh the skin on her shin flapped down like fell off from below the knee down to her ankle and uh, like the size of my hand and I said do not look down here it, it, don't look so look look back up to to where I proposed a couple of minutes before and um I put the flap of skin back up I could see the bone so I knew it wasn't wasn't an open fracture what you just closed yeah, it, it like a litter box pretty much just yeah flap that back up <laughs> like yeah so, and, and it wasn't bleeding out that much like she was wearing white socks and they, they had a little bit of blood around the top but it wasn't bleeding that much so I said you know are you in pain and she said you know I can, I can get to the car and you're not bleeding out so let's get you back to the car and back and to the hospital so I would I, I wrapped it up I, I ripped my shirt into you know strands of bandage and, and strapped it back up and then um would carry a fireman's lifter a couple of hundred meters and then go back to oh, get the yeah. bags and then you know the worst part because I ripped my shirt off my back got sunburned didn't I oh it was it was awful oh <laughs> were you okay and i made sure either a couple of years later bought me a new shirt as well because that was one of my favorite shirts <laughs> and when you went what? into the hospital you said hey we've, we've both got injuries here she's yeah, she's got exactly. she's got a graze treat, on her leg treat me first <laughs> but yeah and then after a, i think it was two hours of, of carrying her back to the car but but i would go two and get hours. the bags so i'd come back hang on wait, wait, yeah so did you have to climb up a mountain or again or something we what we we, well, to we 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 landed in the middle of nowhere so we had to get back to the car from where we landed so yeah finally got back to the car got to the er straight into surgery i think it was a couple of hours of surgery Terrible i lost sunburn. the engagement ring you lost yeah. the engagement ring <laughs> lost the engagement ring yeah and we didn't have well, there, was, there was some sort of get out clause in the insurance because it was a national park or something like that so we ended up putting the bill and I said to the photographer, do you mind if we sell this photo to try and um, make some money back for for the hospital bill? And he said, yeah, not a problem. So we got the, the photo on the front page of the Times. And uh, not of, I didn't want to involve the accident because I never want to promote base jumping in the media as, you know, shock and awe. You know, the, the photo was I proposed and now we did this beautiful flight. And they put it on the front front page of the Times, and I looked on Google, how much do you get for the front picture of the Times? And it was something like 400 quid. And I thought, oh, okay, well, it's at least a little bit recovered from the bill. And I bought the photographer a bottle of 40-pound whiskey to say thank you. And then when the, the invoice came through for the for the cover photo, it was 14 quid because it was the <laughs> South African Times and not the English Times. Oh, no. And I realized I just lost out by giving this guy a 40-quid bottle of, bottle of whiskey. <gasps> but um but we got the photo hanging up somewhere and it's uh yeah it's quite nice so you do ski base jumping as well can how, how's mm. that different from normal base jumping apart from the fact that you're hooning around on skis <laughs> so it, it's it's an amazing feeling it's and the difference is if you're skiing off a cliff at 30 miles an hour you're not dropping straight straight away you're you're pushing out from the cliff you're getting hang time and then you start to fall so, I mean, it's just incomparable to, to, to normal base jumping where, where you step off and you're plummeting straight away. 
so it's yeah it's, it's pretty special it's it's an amazing feeling and there's not many there's not too many people that i would say uh inspired me to do what i do now but shane mcconkey was a professional skier that I, I grew up watching all his films and and he although he wasn't the first person to ski base he definitely took it to the big screen and, and made it you know a thing that, that people were aware of um there's a documentary on him yeah um, isn't there there is yeah yeah phenomenal I, yeah what a documentary what a, what a guy he died doing a ski base, a wingsuit ski base, which is just taking things to another level. There's only three people in the world who have ever done a, a wingsuit ski base. Uh, and he died in the Dolomites off a exit point on Saspodoy that um, that I redid a couple of years ago. Not on a wingsuit? Not, not in the wingsuit. No, I, I haven't haven't done the wingsuit ski base. So you're just honing off a cliff on skis and then you start, boosh, parachutes up. Yeah. But you yeah, you, hang you, you get that hang point, you start falling, and then um, yeah, then you then you chuck it, and then the landing as well is special, you know, because you can come in at a pretty fast speed and then land on your skis, and yes, yeah, it's, it's a cool feeling. You were skiing recently, and someone fell into a crevasse or something, didn't they? Yeah, Eva, my wife, she's uh, apparently accident prone, and we were doing a ski touring route up a four thousand meter peak. It was three of us in a line. I was in front, you know, technically, if if I'm crossing a crevasse, I should be the one that falls in because I'm the first one over it. And there's a thin layer of, of snow and ice that covers these crevasses. And these crevasses normally go perpendicular to the glacier. So you never travel on the glacier perpendicular. You, you travel at an angle, which will mean that if you are crossing a glacier, uh, crevasse, you'll limit the amount of time. But it just so happens that this crevasse was at the exact angle on which we were traveling. So we were walking on top of this very thin ice bridge without knowing. And I heard this little yelp behind me, you know, and, ah! and that was it. And I looked behind and my skis were poking over the edge of the crevasse. Um, and I couldn't see my wife or my friend, Luke. And they were, yeah, gone down this hole. Straight away, I step off the a crevasse uh, make myself an anchor make sure i'm i'm safe because i can't help if i'm not safe so that's that's number one then call in rescue you know e even if they don't you, you should always as i said earlier you should always be able to get yourself out of these situations we we definitely could have got ourselves out of these re situ this situation um but at that point i couldn't hear them or see them and you know if they're bleeding out or unconscious or whatever i want rescue there as soon as possible so while the rescue is doing their thing, it still took them 45 minutes to, to get them out. I can start doing the rescue myself. So I set up an anchor, chuck down the rope to, to Luke, who was the first. Uh, and at this point I'm next to the, to the crevasse because I'm safe on the, on the rope on the anchor point. So I can now hear them, but I can't so, see them. So you guys are all linked up when this happens by a rope, right? We weren't. No. They oh, so they've just they've just fallen flat down there by themselves. They've fallen separately. Yeah. Right. Okay. Um, and and a lot of people do ski tour linked up, but in this case, it's quite possible that if we were all linked up, we all would have been in that in that hole. But yeah, so I, I chucked the rope down. I could hear them now. Luke had a dislocated shoulder, had a hole in his neck from the ski pole, and then Eva had pretty much nothing. A little bruise on her leg. But the, the problem with, with, they were both sandwiched in the crevasse, like like stuck. So when I chucked down the rope 
to start hauling him out with a three-to-one pulley system. Luke couldn't even really attach the rope to his harness or, or get himself out because of his dislocated shoulder. So I now had him safe, at least. He, he couldn't drop any further. And by that time, the, the helicopter rescue came. What do your parents think? Like, what, are they, what are their thoughts towards all of this? So I, I think my parents, there was a point where my parents were worried what I was getting up to. But I don't think that was the wingsuiting or the base jumping. I think it was the climb. When I climbed the north face of the Eiger, I think that's the first time I ever saw my dad or heard that my dad was like a little bit worried about what I was doing. But in terms of the wingsuiting side of stuff, I, I took my parents to see me, seeing Eva and I wingsuiting. And I took them all the way to the exit point. And I clipped them on with a harness to, to an anchor point and they could watch Eva and I go through the whole process of of talking about where we're going to land, the exit count, the the angle of attack, the trage- trajectory on which we're going to exit the, the ramp. And we landed and met up with them and they, they kind of said how calm and, and methodical the whole process was. And I think it really put their minds at rest of it's not some you know stunt where we're all shouting and hollering and full of adrenaline and just mm. charging off mountains. It's a really it's a real process. What's the end goal for you? Like, what is there something you're striving for? Yeah, I'm working on that now. <laughs> I think I think my goal at the moment would be to get the 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 highest altitude wingsuit flight. That, that's something that, would, that I'm starting to to look at. What would that be? Uh, at around eight thousand meters. That would be jumping out of a plane. No, no, no. So from from a cliff, it would it would be a base jump. But from, Everest. Um, possibly some something that big. <laughs> you're looking at Everest. You're going to be your your wingsuit base jumping off. Everest. No, I mean Everest itself doesn't really. I've I've looked at it quite extensively. It doesn't really have a cliff that's viable. But there's so, a few other mountains out there that do. Which ones? Well, you really start to limit the options when you're jumping at 8,000 meters because there's only 14 mountains that are 8,000 meters. And then when you found one, then you've got to look at the access. So so maybe that there's a cliff on that mountain, but can you even access it? So there's maybe four or five that have cliffs and it's now just a process of trying to figure out whether there's a route up to that point oh well good luck for it mate is there where can people find you if they want to learn more about you and, and what you're doing and what you're going to be doing cheers man yeah um so tim how adventure on instagram website and facebook well thanks very much for coming on the show tim really appreciate thanks it. for having me man really appreciate it. it was a good chat cheers and thank you very much for listening. We release episodes every fortnight, so if you want an alert for our next episode when it drops, just hit the follow button on whatever platform you're listening to. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.